It's Tuesday, September 25th, and this is The Daily Dive. Thursday will continue to be the biggest day in Washington this week. Christine Blasey Ford will testify about sexual assault allegations she made about Brett Kavanaugh. We now find out that there is another accuser, and possibly more. Kavanaugh continues to deny all. Thursday will also host a meeting between Rod Rosenstein and President Trump about his future at the Justice Department after news came out that Rosenstein was ready to resign. Ginger Gibson, political reporter for Reuters, joins us to break it all down. Next, DNA comes through again. Sacramento police arrested the man known as the NorCal Rapist, and the investigation was almost identical to that of the Golden State Killer. DNA was entered into a genealogy website called GEDmatch.com, and investigators followed the family tree until they zeroed in on their suspect. Sam Stanton, reporter for the Sacramento Bee, joins us for how the investigators did it again. Finally, in a story of survival with a happy ending, an Indonesian teenager was rescued after surviving 49 days out at sea with little to no supplies. Aldi Novel Adelong was working on a floating fish trap when his tether snapped and wind pushed him out to sea. He survived by catching fish and drinking seawater he squeezed from his clothes. My producer Miranda joins me to discuss how Aldi was finally rescued. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. The truth is I've never sexually assaulted anyone in high school or otherwise. I am not questioning and have not questioned that perhaps Dr. Ford at some point in her life was sexually assaulted by someone in some place. But what I know is I've never sexually assaulted anyone. Joining us now is Ginger Gibson, political reporter for Reuters. It was just yesterday we had you on for all the latest on Brett Kavanaugh and Rod Rosenstein possibly getting fired. And everything changes after we finish talking. Let's start off with Rod Rosenstein, because yesterday when we were talking about it, it was everybody was wondering out loud, is the president going to fire him after what came out in the New York Times piece where he said he, he would possibly wear a wire and maybe invoke the 25th Amendment? They said that he was sarcastically doing that. And then today we found out that he had already called John Kelly. He had a meeting there at the White House. He was putting in his resignation. And now we're holding off until the big day Thursday again. What's going on with that? I feel like we should start time stamping any descriptions of what's happening that we start making because it's all changing so quickly. But you're right. There's now even more questions about how long Rod Rosenstein will continue to be the deputy attorney general and the person in charge of overseeing the Mueller Russia investigation. We knew going into the weekend that President Trump was wanting to get rid of him for a while now. And we saw this New York Times piece that looked to be, frankly, an excuse for the president to nix him, suggesting that Rosenstein had been trying to get rid of the president would seem to be a good reason the president could give to getting rid of him. But now we know that those plans, whatever it was Rosenstein resigning or it was Trump firing him, are on hold, at least for a little bit. We know that the president and Rosenstein are scheduled to meet on Thursday. Currently, President Trump is in New York at the United Nations General Assembly, where leaders from all over the world come. So that might be a bit of a distraction from him from being able to fire anyone in Washington this week. And from what we understand, what we're seeing in these leaks and these stories is sort of a public flash of what is a very intense behind-the-scene debate where President Trump has wanted to get rid of those who are overseeing this investigation and within his own party and his own administration an effort to convince him not to. Yesterday we were talking about, you know, what could this mean for the midterms? Just kind of throws all this political turmoil at the the issue. But 
I don't know. It just seems like waiting till Thursday is the president just wants to talk to him personally so he can fire him in person. You know, it, it seems like it's still going to happen. We have to remember that the president fancies himself one of the most expert negotiators. And so it's possible that what we're seeing here is him attempt to negotiate how this Russia investigation is handled using a firing or a non-firing or a resignation or a non-resignation as a leverage to try to get DOJ and by that Rosenstein to do what he wants, which is bring this Russia investigation quickly to an end. Now, that's just speculation, but there could be any number of reasons that they're waiting to this conversation instead of just signing a dismissal letter today. They said that Noel Francisco, the Solicitor General, would overtake the Russia probe if Rod Rosenstein were to leave. That's correct. Noel Francesco, who is currently the Solicitor General, which is like Trump's guy in the Supreme Court, would most likely take over this investigation, which might throw a wrench in Donald Trump's plans since he wouldn't get to pick sort of the person who would then take over oversight of the investigation. He would be stuck with someone who's already in the chain of command and couldn't be the person that he, say, picked to temporarily take over for Rosenstein. And now to Brett Kavanaugh, we were talking about his nomination. There's a big meeting set, more testimony on Thursday where Christine Blasey Ford is also going to testify. And now we come out that there might be a total of four women, possibly. There's something coming out of uh, The New Yorker. There's something coming from Michael Avenatti. And then there's something from the Montgomery Sentinel saying that there are rumblings of another woman there. That's right. We are seeing more women potentially coming forward and sort of Kavanaugh digging his heels in, sending a letter to the Senate Judiciary Committee saying he won't be intimidated, he won't be forced to withdraw. We saw Mitch McConnell last week insisting that they were going to, quote, plow through, potentially having known that there were more women poised to come forward. This week is going to be a real test of that. And frankly, it's going to be harder and harder for Republicans if they can't deem some of these accusations to not be true. Volume starts to uh, feed the old saying of where there's smoke, there's fire, and they're going to have to throw some water on it here real quick. I read the letter that Brett Kavanaugh sent, and you can hear the frustration in there, too. He's like, hey, man, I've already gone through this process, and all these people are coming on. The president and his allies now are are painting it as a Democratic left-wing smear campaign, and, and you can feel the frustration in that letter from Brett Kavanaugh. In the latest allegations... Uh, comes from a dorm room incident where Brett Kavanaugh supposedly exposed himself to the woman and she pushed him away or something inadvertently touching him. And like I said, Michael Avenatti has an unnamed woman with credible information, he says, regarding Judge Kavanaugh and Mark Judge with other crazy details. As you were saying, it's just hard to put this all in perspective. And if the Judiciary Committee is not going to let anybody else testify, what else do you do with just the testimony of Christine Blasey Ford? And to be clear, this newest story that we heard was a woman who alleged that Brett Kavanaugh placed his genitals in her face while she was inebriated. And then she sat there and heard someone shout down the hall of their dorm, describing to everyone who could hear what he had just done. So it was a pretty graphic and detailed accusation. Republicans are trying to move quickly. They're trying to turn this into a political fight, saying that these are made up political accusations instead of factual accusations from these women. And for that, reason, they're trying very hard to argue that this is not something that should be taken seriously, even as Democrats insist they do be given sort of the weight deserving of an accusation of this gravity. Ginger Gibson, political reporter for Reuters. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me.
For 27 years, there has been one common thread, his DNA. I have often said in my career that DNA is the silent witness to the truth. Sacramento police detectives arrested Roy Charles Waller, a 58-year-old man living in Benicia. Joining us now is Sam Stanton, reporter for the Sacramento Bee. So we found out that the Sacramento police and the DA there announced the arrest of a person known as the NorCal Rapist. The way the investigation unfolded was almost exactly the same way that it did for the Golden State Killer, the East Area Rapist. They used DNA, they submitted it to this website called GEDmatch, and they formed this family tree and little by little zeroed in on the suspect. Now we have another arrest in these crimes. His name is Roy Charles Waller. What else do we know about him? Well, he had worked for the past 25 years as a safety specialist on the campus at UC Berkeley, where he was in charge of making sure that they followed safe procedures and using trucks and forklifts and that type of thing. And he lived in Benicia with his wife, but he had moved around over the years, and a lot of the places that public records put him at as having lived at were also places where some of these attacks took place. The NorCal Rapist series began in 1991 in Ronert Park, and authorities believe ended in 2006 here in Sacramento, although they're still looking to see if there are other uh, cases they can tie to this. And none of these crimes were committed there ever there at UC Berkeley or anything like that, right? Because he had been, the timing of this, he had been working there just maybe a year or two after all these crimes started. Authorities don't know of any crimes that were committed at Berkeley or in the area. Berkeley police have no record of ever arresting him, but they're still looking at it. And once again, the investigation came down to the DNA. They used that jedmatch.com website, the same thing that they used with the Golden State Killer, and that's how they tracked him down again. It's a carbon copy of the Golden State Killer case. And what this means is all of these cases that they've been saving DNA on, at least here in Sacramento and other counties around California, they're going to be looking at trying to do the same thing. So if there's DNA evidence left over from a cold case, they're going to be plugging this in to that website and probably others to see if they can find some way to solve these cold cases. The thing about this Waller case is this only took them 10 days. The East Area Rapist investigation took hundreds and hundreds of hours of trying to figure out the family tree that would lead them to a suspect. This they did in 10 days time. Wow. How did they have all this DNA from him? What did investigators uh, get from him? Because I I know in the case of the Golden State Killer, they got like a soda can and they got stuff off of his car door. What did they use in this case? Right. In this case, they had his home. Once they decided he might be a possible suspect, they had his home in Benicia under surveillance for six days. And in that period of time, he took his trash out, much like the uh, suspect in the East Area Rapist case did. And they went and they collected the trash and they found a drinking straw and they took that straw and analyzed it. And according to the court records that are on file here in Sacramento, it was a match to the DNA that had been left behind at victims' homes. What were the methods of Roy Charles Waller? What did he do? And I know in one case in particular, there was tons of his DNA evidence left behind because one of the victims was able to stab him and get his blood all over the place. Typically, the NorCal rapist would break into women's homes late at night, wearing a mask and carrying a gun. He would tie them up with duct tape and assault them for hours and hours and hours. Sometimes he would take their ATM card and get their pin and go withdraw money, or he would force them to go to an ATM 
and withdraw money for him. In the Chico case, the suspect went into a woman's home, uh, tied her up and assaulted her, and then he left the room briefly. And while he was gone, she managed to wrestle out of the bindings and he came back in and she stabbed him in the arm with a pair of scissors. And it left an amazing amount of blood throughout the home and on the bed, apparently. And so the suspect tried to clean up all of the blood, wiped the woman's body down, tried to get it all down, and then took all of the sheeting and towels that he used with him. But he left quite a bit of DNA behind, according to authorities. And so that evidence, plus the just DNA from the sexual assault that was left behind on victims, has been collected for years and just banked away until technology allowed them to find someone. Waller was in court yesterday. Two of his victims were right in the front row for his hearing there. What happened? In the Sacramento courtrooms, they have steel cages for the suspects. And at one point he turned and he locked eyes with both of these women who say that they were assaulted by him years ago. One was the Chico uh, victim and the other was the very first victim in the series, the woman who was raped in 1991 in Roderick Park when she was 21. And they both said that they made eye contact and they just glared at him. And when they came out afterward and spoke to us, they were extraordinarily brave. They weren't worried. They were pleased that he was under arrest. And they said that he wasn't going to define their lives, that they were moving on despite what he had done to them, allegedly done to them. They planned to see this uh, prosecution through. It's really amazing. You know, DNA comes through again. And this time with this searching and comparing it on these genealogy websites, just a new method, a new tool that police now have to close some of these cold cases cases and things like that. It's amazing. And and Sacramento police at the forefront on it. Now they're able to turn this around so much quicker. Well, what's amazing is that the district attorney here, Henry Schubert, who's an expert in this DNA investigation, also could be credited with solving a series of murders in Colorado in 1984, because when she was trying to find the East Area rapist, she approached people in Nevada and said, we think you should be taking DNA from your existing prison inmates. And Nevada started to do that. And last month, they got a DNA hit on these four cold case murders in Colorado. They were just gruesome murders that went back to an inmate they'd had in one of their prisons since 84. So he's being charged in Colorado as an offshoot of this DNA investigation here. Sam Stanton, reporter for the Sacramento Bee. Thank you very much for joining us again. Thank you. But it just sits in the middle of the ocean, supported by buoys, and it's got a lamp. And basically, this kid's job was to make sure that he turned the lamp on to attract fish. And once a week, someone would come and take all the fish that he's caught all week and drop off a bunch of supplies and more gasoline for the lamp and leave. Joining me now is my producer, Miranda, to talk about this incredible story. So there's an Indonesian teenager who survived 49 days out at sea. He was not even on a boat. It was like a raft with a little hut on the top of it. His name was Aldi Novel Adelang. He was 18, 19 years old. He was out on this little raft called a rompong, and it's like the loneliest job I've ever heard. Let's start there, uh, Miranda. What is this job that he has, and why was he out there? Rompong is considered to be a fish aggregator. Basically, what they do is it's a floating raft out in the ocean, and you live on this long term. It's a raft. It looks like a little hut. So it's got some kind of shelter from the sun, but it just sits in the middle of the ocean, supported by buoys, and it's got a lamp. And basically, this kid's job was to make sure that he turned the lamp on to attract fish. And once a week, someone would come and take all the fish that he's caught all week 
and drop off a bunch of supplies and more gasoline for the lamp and leave. It looks like a shack. It doesn't look like it's sturdy at all, but it's about 78 miles off of the coast and it's just held by a rope. There's no propellers. There's no engine on this thing. There's no way to escape. Yeah, there's no way to escape. He was contracted to do this for six months. And how much are they paying him each month? $130 a month for a 24 hour a day job. Yeah, it's so crazy. We were just talking about like, what do you do (laughs) during the day? What is there to do? You don't have any (laughs) Wi-Fi. What do you do all day? I guess you read a book. So what happened? He got swept away. I guess he was being held by the rope. The rope snapped and then the winds just took him out into the ocean. The wind blew him away. And Oscar, this isn't the first time he's blown away three other times, but each time he's been recovered pretty quickly. But this time it took 49 days. He only had enough supplies for several days, which sounds like at least he had just gotten his weekly supply drop. So it wasn't dire, but it was pretty dire. He ran out of stuff pretty quickly and he had to use pieces of the actual hut to burn the wood to cook fish he was catching in the ocean to survive. And what do you do for drinking water? Because this was the one of the interesting drink things. Drink his own tears. One of the things, <laughs> and it's one of the things that they always tell you not to do, to drink seawater. Yeah, he would wring out his clothing that had collected water during the day. So it's not like exact seawater. It's more like residual air dew in seawater, which maybe is desalinated enough to drink. Yeah. He survived. He lived. And his rescue is pretty remarkable, too. He was afraid he'd never see his family again. And that he prayed every day to see them. There was about 10 ships, they said, that passed by him before he finally got rescued. So imagine that, getting your hopes up, seeing a ship. Oh, man, this is the time I'm going to be rescued. Nope. They just passed him along because he was so tiny in that little raft. It was August 31st. A bulk carrier called the Arpeggio sailed past Aldi and he waved a, a cloth, I guess, maybe a shirt, something to get their attention. And when he didn't get his attention, miraculously, his walkie talkie radio thing still worked. So he gets on there and in English starts shouting, help, help. And that did catch their attention. The ship's captain got the signal and the waves were super high that day. That arpeggio ship had a really difficult time getting close to Aldi. They circled him four times before throwing him a rope. And that was the worst part, too, because the ship was so large compared to his little thing. The rope didn't even reach. So he had to jump into the water, (laughs) get the rope. After being adrift for Nearly 50 days. He was in weakened state. He almost lost the rope. They were able to catch his hand and and save him. Then they contacted all the proper authorities. They brought him on the ship. They gave him food and water. I think the ship's chef gave him a haircut. Gave him a haircut. That's nice. Um, But, you know, I always just love these stories of survival. You know, you have to do what you have to do. You have to catch that fish. You have to drink the sea, wrung out seawater, anything you can do to possibly survive. And I don't know if I could ever be that type of person. I definitely know I could not do it. There's no way. I wouldn't make it six minutes. You'd be done after you found out there's no Wi-Fi. Yeah, I'd be out. (laughs) Gotta go. All right. Well, like I said, I love these stories. The Indonesian teenager surviving 49 days with very little supplies and they rescued him and it's a happy ending. He's back with his family now. I think, oh, at the end of one of the articles, it said that now he doesn't want to ever do this job again. He's done with this job and yeah. it was, and my parents agree, yeah. <laughs> which is such a 19 year old boy thing to say. I, I love think, it. I think you uh, realize you don't want to be part of this job after the first time you float off into the ocean. Yeah. But thanks, Miranda. Thank you, Oscar. All right, that's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow the Daily Dive on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. 
The Daily Dive is produced by Miranda Moreno and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this was your Daily Dive.